0: Well, good morning. morning. Pastor Don was away this weekend at a pastor's retreat with Barnabas Ministries, uh, but he assured me he will be back for South Fest this afternoon, so we'll look forward to catching up with him then. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, this is near the end of the Bible. Uh, Don't hesitate to use the table of contents if you need help finding it. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to ask a question this morning. Who do you aspire to be like? Who do you want to emulate in your life? You know, pretty early on as infants, we learn to imitate our parents. Uh, you know, they smile at us, we smile back, they make a certain little sound, we try our best to make that sound back to them. It's all very cute, of course. Uh, but as we get older, the world gets a little bigger and we meet more people, and we admire other people as well. And so we identify various uh, character traits about those people we admire, and we try to emulate those things in different ways. And then, of course, by the time we get to middle age, we go right back to imitating our parents, and there's really no escaping that. Uh, You've (laughs) probably seen the commercials. But there's a sense in which we, as human beings, are composite imitators we learn various virtues from different people, and we try to adapt those things ourselves in hopes of becoming the kind of individual we hope to be. Well, it seems to me that one neglected aspect of the Christian life is the imitation of Jesus Christ. That might sound strange, but hear me out for a second. If we've been Christians for a while, And as we've grown in grace and grown in maturity as Christians, we still have a sense of our sin. And so it's easy for us to think of a biblical figure like Abraham and to say, well, I'm going to try and live a life of faith like Abraham with all of its ups and downs. Or maybe I would dare to be a Daniel in the midst of a hostile culture. Or certainly we could try to imitate the Apostle Paul who considered himself the chief of sinners. Uh, That's much more relatable to us. But to try and imitate the perfect son of God, the sinless savior, uh, for most of us that feels intimidating, doesn't it? Uh, Is that actually how we should aspire to live? Should we try to do that? Well, as Peter continues to unpack what it means to be a faithful Christian in a hostile world, it is the imitation of Christ and his example that becomes a central focus in our text today. So if you would follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, The main idea I want us to see in this text this morning is that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ in his sufferings. As Christians, our calling is to imitate Christ's example, even in the midst of suffering. Now, before we get to all the particulars of our passage, I do need to offer another disclaimer. Uh, In many ways the spiritual dynamics at work in Peter's letter have not changed. God certainly has not changed. Human beings and our issues have not changed. But there are some cultural differences that we need to address. And the first is that of the servant-master relationship. So it's actually very interesting here in verse 18 because Peter uses a different word than he does in verse 16 to talk about a similar dynamic. In verse 18, he uses the word for household servants. Now, from a social perspective, like just human beings living at that time, these people would have been considered slaves. But he uses the word household servant when relating to the master to show this is the case from a human perspective. There are masters and there are slaves from a human perspective. Now again, slavery has been uh, a part of human existence since the fall, and by God's common grace uh, and by the influence, I believe, of Christianity in the world, we've seen the the eradication of slavery in our time, uh, unlike any other time in human history, though it sadly still exists. But he draws that distinction as opposed to what he says in verse 16, which is that we are slaves of God. So, household servants in verse 18, slaves of God in verse 16. And I think he draws that contrast to show that we are only slaves of God. No human being or institution has any ultimate authority over us besides God himself. So, it doesn't matter what the social structures are, we are only bound, as it were, to God, to his Holy Spirit. To obey his word. And so in that sense then, it doesn't matter socially whether you're the master or the household servant. If you're a Christian, you are a slave of God. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. You're committed to doing his will as he has laid it out in his word. But again, these household servants, which again would have been considered slaves, uh, these people had few rights, if any, Uh, Certainly, they would have been dependent economically on their masters for survival. Uh, It would have been a very hard and horrible existence. And not only that, but should their masters treat them harshly or unjustly, uh, they would have had no recourse, no way to seek justice in their world. That's different than how it is today. Uh, If we are treated unfairly or unjustly, Uh, We have, by God's grace, a criminal justice system that we can appeal to. We have human resource representatives. We have others that we can look to for recourse when we are treated unjustly. They would not have had that in their time. So we need to acknowledge that. The second thing is that these slaves would have been at the disposal of their masters. And again, this is part of living in a fallen, sinful world. And so we need to talk about this word beaten in verse 20. Because corporal punishment, which actually until fairly recently would have been a socially acceptable means of punishment, uh, that was a reality for them back then. But I need to say this for us today before we get back into the particulars of this text. It is never okay for you to be physically assaulted. Okay? If anybody is out there, Whether in your home or in your workplace, and you've been physically assaulted, you need to get out of that situation. You need to find a safe place to go, and you need to seek justice for yourself and for the abuser uh, for the sake of their uh, good and for the common good. Now, by God's grace, uh, since I've been a pastor here, I've only been aware of one instance of spousal abuse— and there was a team of us, we worked together to get a safe place uh, for the wife, in this case, to go, and we sought treatment for the husband at an organization called PATS over on Waverly Road. They do great work. But I want you to be aware, if that's your situation, you can come talk to us or talk to a trusted friend you need to get out of that situation, okay? So those are the important qualifiers before we get into the particulars of this text. But I don't want us to lose the emphasis here, okay? Okay? The emphasis here is that we are called to follow Christ in his sufferings. And part of that means being submissive even to unjust treatment. Now again, if that includes physical assault, you need to get out. But there is a way to be submissive even when treated unfairly or unjustly. Notice the focus of Peter's argument in these first three verses here. It's not simply that they're being treated poorly uh, for no reason. It's that they're being treated poorly while doing good. They're trying to honor God in how they live, and they're still being treated unjustly or unfairly. So we need to know as Christians that if we act foolishly or recklessly or obnoxiously, Uh, We deserve to be treated poorly in a sense. We deserve to be reprimanded. We deserve to be disciplined, okay? Being obnoxious is not, uh, that's not a category that we should operate in as Christians. But what Peter's saying here is it's possible, maybe even probable, in an increasingly hostile culture that we will be treated unjustly because we are Christians. That's how it is in a fallen and sinful world. So how can we be submissive when it comes to be treat, being treated unfairly or unjustly? Well, I think the first thing it means is that we still abstain from the passions of the flesh. So verses 11 and 12 are kind of a thesis statement for all that follows to the end of chapter 3 here. And so we need to recognize that we are called to abstain from the passions of the flesh even when we are treated unjustly. When we are treated unjustly, we are entitled to be angry. We are not entitled, never entitled, to sin. So anger is just an emotional response to something that's not how it's supposed to be. Okay? Uh, I like what David Paulus the biblical counselor said. He said, at its core, <coughs> excuse me, at its core, anger is very simple. It expresses, I'm against that. It's the way we react when something we think is important is not the way it's supposed to be. And certainly most of us, if not all of us, would think it's important that people be treated fairly, be treated justly. Certainly we think we should be treated fairly and justly, even if we have a hard time thinking that about other people. And so it is right that we get angry. If we don't get angry at unjust treatment, we have another anger problem. We're not angry enough. But anger... Like this, righteous anger presents us with a fork in the road, okay? There's two paths that we can choose uh, given a right angry response to unjust treatment. We'll call the first of those roads the passions of the flesh. So when somebody treats you unfairly or unjustly, to indulge the passions of the flesh could look like that hot adrenaline-fueled tunnel vision You just, you get angry and the further you go down that road, the more likely you are to have an outburst, either verbally or physically. That's one way the passions of the flesh manifest themselves when we're treated unjustly. But there's actually another way to also indulge the passions of the flesh that we might not identify readily as that. And that is the more cold and calculating forms of indulging our flesh. So sometimes that we're treated unfairly or unjustly, our solution is, well, I'm just going to be passive-aggressive toward that person. I'm going to find ways to kind of dig at them. I'm going to maybe put down their character when I gossip about them to my friends. Or I'm going to find ways to undermine them in different ways. Or it could be as cold and calculating as saying, I'm just going to have nothing to do with that person. Just totally going to shun them. I want nothing more to do. I'm going to give them the silent treatment. That's another way to indulge the passions of the flesh. Because all of these ways, whether it's the hot adrenaline-fueled outburst or the cold and calculating distancing, either way, it's a failure to love. And we're called to love even our enemies, even those people who treat us unfairly. So that's one way one road that anger presents us with. But there is another road. We'll call this second road being mindful of God. So when we're rightfully angry because we've been treated unjustly, we have a choice to still be mindful of God even in that interaction. Now one way that we are mindful of God is to know that God is always watching. Okay? God sees everything In fact, he doesn't only see the circumstances the way we do, but he knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart, both your heart and the person who's wronged you. God knows all those things. And so the people of Israel, when they were groaning under the weight of their bondage to slavery in Egypt, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 2 that God heard their groaning. God saw the people of Israel And God knew. God knows. Do you know that? Do you know that every slight you've ever experienced, every mistreatment, God knows that. In the mystery of his providence, he has allowed it. But he knows. So don't ever think that whatever's whatever's happening to you is escaping God's notice. Because he is there, and he searches not only their hearts, but ours as well. And to be mindful of God, to go down this road, is to know that God is the one who ultimately will judge. So I don't need to retaliate. I don't need to exact my own vengeance. I don't need to plot my revenge down the road. Because I know, being mindful of God, that God is the one who judges. And he's the one who's going to have the final say. In fact, everything, every sin that has not been put at the cross will be revisited on judgment day. And the trouble with this is, (laughs) when we go down this road, the passions of the flesh, we actually set up a courtroom in our minds. can't say that it's a fair trial, uh, but we set up a courtroom, don't we? And when we're treated unfairly, we become prosecutor and judge, jury, and executioner. We've got all our arguments formulated about everything they ever did wrong to me. And boy, we, memory can sometimes fail us, but when we're angry about something, we remember real quick, don't we? Okay? And so we formulate our arguments, and we drag up the past, and we think, man, I got them. They've treated me wrong, and they're going to hear about it. And so we present the arguments to the judge, who in our courtroom of our minds, that's, that's us too. So the arguments are well received by the judge, Okay? And then the jury goes right along, and then we decide what the sentence is gonna be, how we're gonna punish that person for what they've done. That's going down the road of the passions of the flesh. We set up a courtroom in our mind and we indulge that to its sinful end. But to be mindful of God is to know that there is a divine courtroom and to know that a guilty verdict in that courtroom is the worst possible outcome for any human being. And so we actually find ourselves taking pity on people who wrong us if we know, in fact, that they are unrepentant and will face review at the judgment throne. But this is good that we are not judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to how we've been wronged, okay? Because not only do we not know or have access to all the facts, right, one of the things we do too is we assign motive to people. And usually we assign the worst possible motive. Well, they did that because they just want me to suffer, or they did that because they're just the worst kind of person. But the thing about God is he knows us. He knows everything. And not only does he know everything, but unlike us, when we're in the heat of our anger, he judges with compassion and mercy. And so Peter's teaching here actually echoes the Lord Jesus himself in Luke chapter 6. He said, but I say to you, love your enemies, your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. He goes on. If you love those who love you, what benefit? It's actually the same word Peter used. What credit is it to you? What benefit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them, but love your enemies and do good, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he, the judge, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful. Why? Because our Father is merciful. So which road is it going to be? When we're treated unfairly, unjustly, are we going to indulge the passions of the flesh? Or are we going to be mindful of God? That's the choice that's before us today. To indulge the passions of the flesh is to seek retaliation. It's not really ultimately to seek justice. But if we're going to live this way, if we're going to make the choice to be mindful of God, we're going to need a lot of help. Because if you know your heart as well as I know my heart, which isn't even that well, we know how sinful our tendencies are and how powerful a temptation it is to go down this road. And so what do we need to do? Well, we can't live this way by summoning our inner strength. There's nothing in our constitution as weak and frail human beings that enables us to live this way. And so we need to look to Christ and follow his example. And following Christ's example, that's where Peter really raises the stakes for us. Again, it's not enough to just follow Paul, though that is a good thing, or to follow Peter himself, but it is Jesus that we are called to imitate. It is our Lord Jesus Christ we are called to follow. And how do we follow him? Well, we remember the story. Jesus suffered sinfully. And you know the story. When the mob came for him in the garden that night, he was praying. He committed no crime. And they were led by a man named Judas who had experienced nothing but the Lord's kindness. In fact, he had just shared dinner with him earlier that evening. And Judas came out to betray him, his friend. Though Jesus had been teaching peacefully, day after day in the temple, they came out with swords and clubs to arrest him. And when they grabbed him to take him away, it was Peter who was inflamed with the passions of the flesh and drew his sword and started swinging. And Jesus said, no, Peter, that's not how we do it. If you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. When they brought him to Caiaphas, they made all kinds of false accusations against him. The man who never told a lie, the man who in himself embodies the truth, the way, the truth and the life, was falsely accused repeatedly among his own people in a courtroom. Has there been a greater injustice in this world? And yet he remained silent, like a sheep before its shears. Now it's not that he didn't speak entirely. He continued to testify to the truth even in those darkest moments. But he didn't make a defense for himself. He didn't retaliate against these people. He submitted himself to them. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And though he had never laid a hand on anyone except to heal them, they beat him repeatedly and they spit in his face but he did not retaliate he did not open his mouth he gave them their very breath what a gift what a kindness and they used it to mock him ruthlessly but he did not retaliate he endured the leaders of his own people god's people They took counsel together. This was a plan. This was a plot against the Lord and his anointed to put him to death. And he submitted himself to them. And so they bound him once again and led him away to Pilate. This was not a court of appeals seeking justice. This was taking counsel among all the nations the Jews, and the Gentiles together to put him to death. When Pilate questioned him, he didn't make a defense for himself. He didn't retaliate. He didn't litigate against Pilate all of his sins, though he could have. Instead, he was silent such that Pilate was amazed and couldn't find any fault in him. Pilate tried to offer him a way out. He said, don't you know I have authority to kill you? Jesus said, you wouldn't have any authority over me. Because he was entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He didn't retaliate. Pilate was so concerned about his own reputation, his own vain glory. He went along with the crowd and delivered him over be crucified and the soldiers the soldiers were merciless the first thing they did was they flogged him if you're not familiar with flogging they tie the victim to a post and they take a whip made of leather with sharp objects in it and they whip the victim such that when they pull it back it peels the flesh right off their bones People who would have seen him would have been shocked to see a man like that. His appearance was so marred beyond any human semblance. People would have been shocked to look at him. But he did not retaliate. He did not open his mouth. And then the soldiers mocked him. They put a purple robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, a symbol of our cursed sinful world and they put it on his head and they beat him and they spit on him but he did not retaliate he did not open his mouth he could have called 12 legions of angels and they would have come to his rescue but he did not retaliate and then they led him away to crucify him Like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as they nailed his bloody hands and feet to that cross, he did not curse them, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them. Who is them? The people who beat him and mocked him and crucified him. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, for Jesus, his son, to suffer injustice, the greatest injustice in the history of humankind. But in all of this, Jesus did not sin. And that's the example that we are called to follow. You might be treated unfairly or unjustly. But brothers and sisters, we must be mindful of God. Jesus was mindful of God. It says in verse 23, he continued entrusting himself To him who judges justly. If you don't know that God is there, if you don't know that God sees your suffering or cares about your suffering, you're going to retaliate. But if you know that God sees, God hears, God knows, and maybe now, but for sure later, God is going to act on your behalf. That changes everything. Changes absolutely everything. And so we have to see Jesus through the eyes of faith. I'm glad we have this cross here in the auditorium. We need to see Jesus through the eyes of faith to know how we should live. But of course, He knows our weakness, He knows that we are dust. He knows the frailty of our constitution. And so he enables us to live righteously. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The tree, that's what the Jews called the cross. It's an echo of Deuteronomy where it says, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Why? Why did he bear our sins in his body on the tree? Part of it was because we needed to be forgiven. I believe he prayed for us just as much. We needed to be forgiven because God is just and every sin not laid at the foot of the cross will be punished one day. So we needed to be forgiven. But the thing Peter has in mind here is that He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we would die to sin, so that we would put away those passions of the flesh, and that we would live to righteousness, to follow him, wholeheartedly obedient as slaves of God, obedient to him. So that we could live in this world and represent our God well. To bring glory to his name. And so he says, by his wounds we have been healed. You know, a lot of people misinterpret that verse. They say, by his wounds we've been healed. So just claim that promise and you're going to get healed of whatever your physical ailment is. That's not what Peter's talking about here. There is a sense in which one day when Christ returns and makes everything new, makes everything right as it should be, we will find physical healing then. But the first thing you and I need to be healed of is our sin sickness. We need to be healed of these passions of the flesh that wage war against us. And so he has freed us from those passions to enable us to live out our calling to follow Jesus. Are you following Jesus? Is that characteristic of your Christianity? You know, a lot of us make decisions to follow Christ. But we often think it's some sort of second-tier Christianity that we would actually follow in his steps. There is no second-tier There is only Christianity and not Christianity. Are we following him? Now we are weak and we are frail and we need his help and his power to live out the righteousness that he calls us to live. But are we aspiring to that? Do we want to imitate Jesus in our lives, including when we're treated unfairly or unjustly. Brothers and sisters, we are called to follow Christ in his sufferings. It's not an optional extra. This is a core part of what it means to be a Christian, to have that label Christian, is to follow Christ. To endure unjust treatment in such a way as to represent our God as he calls us to in this world. And so my prayer for us at South Church is that we would live up to this calling by his grace, by his power, 100%. But may we live up to this calling to be a light in a dark and dying world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, show us Christ. Show us Christ in all his humiliation. Show us his sinless suffering through the eyes of faith. Show us the example that we have been called to follow. But Lord, help us not to stop there. But help us to see that Christ himself has been vindicated. And that you, the judge who is just, raised him from the dead with the absolute promise that all those who trust in him, who follow him, will one day be vindicated and raised as well. God, our eyes are so easily blurred. Our hearts are so easily discouraged so prone to unrighteous anger, so prone to indulging the passions of the flesh. God, forgive us and give us grace that we might walk in obedience to you as your people for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.